Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. The message this morning is on a psalm that's similar to the one last week. And it begins with the statement, Vindicate me. So... The psalmist is under some attack and is seeking God's help in the midst of the attack. Let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true, Psalm 26. A psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Again, this is a psalm of David, and this is the inscription that sits at the top of it. Some psalms give the historical context. If you go to Psalm 51, it says, after his sin, David sinned with Bathsheba. This one does not give an historical context. Often, when the psalms are laments or they're pleadings, commentators, pastors will try to say this psalm probably was at the time when he was doing this or was suffering that. This psalm was at the time of Absalom's rebellion against David and the kingdom. And so this particular psalm, (coughs) pastors will will talk about having one theory or another about when it happened, but the Bible doesn't say. The interesting thing is that Spurgeon, in going through, so if you think about the suffering that causes the psalmist at a particular time to say, vindicate me at God, and you say, well, we don't know when it is, it doesn't say. What's interesting is that Spurgeon doesn't try to place this psalm in a context historically for David's suffering and when he needed God's help. But the interesting thing is Spurgeon then begins to open up all David's claims of righteousness and assign an historical context for his righteousness. Now, it doesn't make any more sense to do that with his righteousness than it does for his, his danger or his sin, right? And so what Spurgeon says is his righteousness, he's referring to, and Spurgeon talks over and over again about how uh, D- David was righteous when he was in the wilderness running from Saul, that, that Saul was following him and David wouldn't kill Saul when he was in the cave with him and all this other stuff. Well, the fact is, our lives are a succession of sin and righteousness. As a matter of fact, each day is a succession of sin and righteousness. 
for the Christian. As a matter of fact, moment by moment is a succession of sin and righteousness. And so I just encourage us that if the Bible doesn't say what the context is of David's righteousness or sin, that we just realize that at any time in life, you can take a snapshot of David, and this psalm is true of him, because why? Well, because the life of a Christian is a life of repentance and faith. And so we're not trying to take a snapshot and say, well, if I, went, if I died now, if I died right now, I'd be okay. Oh, no, I don't want to die now because I wouldn't be okay. You know, it's, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves... That's not how we want to live our life. We don't want to live our life taking our pulse all the time. We don't want our children living under us taking their pulse all the time. It's one of the helpful things in Ted Tripp's book, uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart, is he says, don't discipline and instruct always thinking about whether or not your children are saved. The fact is, <laughs> if you're honest, you'll realize that at any particular time in life, you don't have a clue whether you're saved. If you take your pulse and say, well, am I saved now? Am I saved then? Am I saved this? You know, um, okay, enough of that. We don't, have, we don't know when the righteousness of this psalm is. We don't know when the sin is. We don't know when the danger is. It's just a psalm of David. So at some point in his life, David wrote this prayer. It begins, vindicate me, O Lord. Now, if you use the word vindicate, that means that you're under attack. And so the psalm does come from someone attacking David. And we have, an, we have some notion of what he was under attack for, because what he says is, because I have righteousness. So he's under attack for what? He's under attack for being a hypocrite, for not having righteousness, obviously. Because the righteousness that God can establish, that he walks straight, that he has integrity, that he hates the wicked, etc., that's the defense. So from the defense, you know what the accusation is. Vindicate me. He's under attack, O oh Lord, for, all right, why is God to vindicate him? For, because I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Now, is this a description of David? He trusted in the Lord without wavering. How about Psalm 51? How about when he looked off the roof in the time of war when the kings are supposed to go out and he saw a woman bathing? Was that wavering? Well, actually, no. <laughs> that was like drowning. That was like diving in head first, you know? It wasn't wavering, right? But... In a, in a way, it was, it was certainly not an act of faith. So how does David, where does David get off, honestly? Don't you often think that when you read the Psalms of David? Where on earth does David get off? I hope you think that. But probably because you're pious, and this is scripture, you don't think where does David get off, you just think where would I get off praying such a prayer? And yet you know it's the prayer book of Christians. So you know you're supposed to pray it. And so you think, how on earth could I pray this? And then you think, well, David can't, but you're a man, and so you don't want to be negative about David. Women don't have any problem being negative about David, but generally men do. Because he's a man after, he's a, he's a man after God's own heart. He's a man after God's own, he's a man after God's own heart. 
David says, I've walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. What is integrity? Well, it's the, it's the thing that, uh, there are two things I delight in about this building. One is its utilitarianism. Nobody can ever say that an aesthete had anything to do with this building. And that's good because later I'll tell you I abominate aesthetes. I abominate them. That's not good, by the way. But right there next to the aesthetics of this building, which are lacking, I love the integrity of this building. And the way I describe our building and why I love it, because somebody this week said to me that they like our church. And I'm like, yeah, right, you know, because I'm an aesthete, you know, what's there to like, you know? And I, I said to them, you know, this is the place I would go if a hurricane or a tornado hit. The death of your husband at 36. I talked to a man this last week, a pastor. He had 10 children, and his wife was 36, and she got cancer and was dead in a year. That's a hurricane. It's a tornado. And you want integrity. Because integrity doesn't, it, it doesn't give way. There is nobody who is not a liar. And this is one of the terrible things today is that nobody has ever sat under preaching and, and pastoral care that explains to them the nature of lying. We all lie, all of us. If you think you don't lie, you're a liar. <laughs> I've had people tell me I don't lie. I've told other people I, I don't lie, and, and I was a liar. Okay, integrity is living in such a way that what you present yourself as, whether it's your appearance or the way you speak, and what's inside is the same. Okay? David says what? David says, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. He's walked in integrity. Notice walk. Walk isn't standing or taking a shot at a moment in time. He has walked in integrity. And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. So, David is a man who lives truthfully. What he presents himself as and what he is are the same thing, okay? He says, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. When things got difficult, David, when the winds blew, the lightning and thunder crackled and boomed, David did not change. He didn't waver. He trusted in the Lord. So then, this allows him to say in verse 2, examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. And this is pretty bodacious if you think about it. To go to God and say, it's one thing to have your wife test you. <laughs> you know, that's difficult enough. But David is going to God. And David is saying, examine me, try me, test me. And then he says, not just my thoughts, but what? My heart. So not just what I think, but test my affections. The things that I love, the things that I like, my affections. Test my mind and my heart. Try me. Turn me inside out, O oh God. Shake me. Give me temptation and sickness. Try me. Give me temptation and sickness and see where I land. You know, I loved yesterday during the wedding of, uh, I don't know who it was. I think it was actually Alex at some point, but there was a statement made about... Um, and by the way, isn't it nice to have gotten to the point in the size of this church that most of you weren't invited? 
I kind of took a delight in that. I always get invited because I'm the senior pastor. Although I suppose one of you is not going to do it now that I said that. But anyhow, it was a sweet wedding for those of you that missed it. Um, but it's, it's very interesting that it, I always appreciate it in weddings when people make references to the winner. You know, if you think of about a wedding being the spring of marriage, you know, the springtime when all the blossoms are beautiful, the flowers and everything, and then the summer and the heat comes in, then the fall, and then the winter. And there are winners in marriage. And the winter doesn't correlate with age, actually. A lot of the sweetest times Mary Lee and I have had are now when we're in our 60s. Um, but there are winners. And so David says, try me, and trials are what show whether you have integrity, whether you're walking straight, whether you're wavering or not, okay? David says, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. So David says, I have integrity, and out of that comes various character traits, and one of them is verse 3. David has loving kindness of God, God's loving kindness before his eyes, and that is what enables him to walk in truth. Now, truth is a straight line, all right? Truth is integrity. Truth is uh, synchronicity. Truth is fully um, conforming the outside, the inside. It's not just the outside of the cup that's clean, it's the inside of the cup. Now, what enables David to live in this way, it's because he has set the loving kindness before his eyes. Now, what does that mean? He doesn't say, I set the law of God before my eyes. He says he set the loving kindness of God before his eyes. What is it that causes your children to obey you? What is it that causes the students in your classroom to obey you? Well, you have to have law, and you have to have discipline, but you also have to have loving kindness. And it's the loving kindness that David sets before his eyes that causes him to walk the straight and narrow path. Okay? We have to have our eyes on the right thing in order to walk straight. I was, when I was uh, preparing to preach this, I thought about, uh, I now have the privilege of cutting my next-door neighbor's lawn, which is a very large, flat place. In my yard, you just have to do all kinds of curves. Your backyard, the top. And this lawn is next to, uh, I think about that all the time. Well, that requires me to cut a straight line. And so how do you cut a straight line if, you don't, if you're not a modern farmer with GPS in your tractor and you can go to sleep in air-conditioned comfort? Well, the way you do it is you have to have your eye on something at the end. If, you can go a few swaths looking at your wheel, looking down, looking at your wheel, and putting it at the same point on the wheel before, right? But after one or two or three, what you're going to see is that you're going like this. Well, then it's time that you look up and you just cut. And typically, if you wait three swaths before you look up and head for the same point the whole time, by the time you do that, you will have uncut grass and a sliver behind you because you're straightening the line causes you to have to go. Are you all with me? 
So you set your eyes straight ahead, and you don't waver. And you don't look down at your smartphone and text while you drive. Okay? That's another lesson we can learn this morning. You don't have to pay me for that one because I'm just a pastor. I'm not a cop. But we have a cop here, and he tells you, go ahead, say to them, don't text and drive. Go on, say it to them. Okay, there you have it. Listen, it's important where our eyes are. It's extremely important where our eyes are. And the purpose of God speaking to you from his word every single week and every day when you read the Bible is so that you have your eyes on him, on his loving kindness and on his law. And his loving kindness is what you look at that enables you to live by his law. Okay? Because he's not a harsh taskmaster. And honestly, so often with kids... I just want to say to them, look at your parents. They're not harsh taskmasters. All right, that, that, you don't have to pay me for that one either. And, you know, as your kids grow older, they're going to accuse you of being a harsh taskmaster. Make sure they lie. Be loving, kind as a father. Be tender. So a couple of kids this morning received my intense rebuke. I get it all done Sunday morning. (laughs) You know, the reason that you have kids go on a retreat, did you know why you have kids go on a retreat? Did you know why? You have kids go on a retreat, so Sunday morning in between services, Pastor Bailey will grab your shoulder. Because Pastor Bailey's heard about who was bad on the trip right? The whole reason you have youth pastors is so they will discipline the parents. It has nothing to do with the children. The parents are just our secret periscope into the family life. They all come to you and they say, your children were bad on this trip. Listen, do not ever fail to send your children to youth group, to Wednesday night. If you don't send your children on the retreat and on the summer mission trip, You know what that means about you? It means you don't want anybody rebuking you about your fatherhood and motherhood. That's what it means. Make no mistake about it. It's not about your kids. I never asked any of my children ever once if they wanted to go to youth group or on a summer trip. Never. It was just expected, and it wasn't because I'm the pastor. It wouldn't make any difference if I earned my living running a landscaping business. My, which I wish I could. <laughs> Honestly, if you have problems with your lawnmower, talk to me. It's nothing I like more, except vacuums. <laughs> <laughs> Cleaning and landscaping is what I really wish that I could do. Because when you get done, you've done something. All right, all right. Okay, where are we? Okay. Send your kids, people. Honestly, send your kids. Don't be foolish. If you want your kids to walk in integrity and truth, you want to put them square in the track where the train's going to smack them. And the train is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit works in the church. 
And so your children never have a choice. I can remember, uh, I can remember. Now, one other thing about this, and then I'll get back, okay? Well, I think I'll do it when, I think I'll do it a little bit later, because then you'll feel like I'm doing expositional preaching. Okay. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. Remember the beginning of the Psalms? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth with the seat of the, in, in the seat of the scoffers. So David's saying that he, re, he, he, he repudiates and will not associate and, and will not sit, all right, with whom? Deceitful men. Nor will I go with pretenders, all right? And at this point, Spurgeon goes off on the, no, not Spurgeon, Calvin. Calvin goes off on the Donatists. And Calvin says there are many, many people who say that they will not associate with the church because the church has within it deceitful men, all right? But I just got done telling you that all of us are liars, right? So doesn't that mean you shouldn't come to church? Well, we can't be perfectionists when it comes to associating with the evil because that would mean that we would have to keep ourselves out of the church so that the church was righteous, But that's never what you hear from people. They never say, I don't go to church because I'm a hypocrite. What they say is, I don't go to church because church is a hypocrite, right? And so there's this this, uh, uh, anecdote about how there's a conference and Augustine's there and the Donatists are saying that they won't sit down. And they won't sit down because it says you're not supposed to sit with deceivers. And, uh, and so Augustine rebuked them and, and said, well, you're not supposed to be here at all, you know, and, and so you're not doing anything by refusing to sit down, right? Well, this is the way we are with the church. And so our children will say to us, and I have heard this more times than I care to remember, where I will have a parent explain to me why their child doesn't come to youth group. And they'll tell me that their child feels ostracized. Their child is outside of the the, the clique. Their child this, that, and the other thing, which all amounts to an accusation that there are sinful and deceitful people in the youth group. And their child is being righteous by staying out of the youth group. And it's a bunch of bunk. The church of Jesus Christ is filled with sinners. It's filled with liars. It's filled with adulterers. It's filled with gossips. It's filled with every single sin that the Bible says you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you do it. Of course the church is filled with homosexuals. Of course the church is filled with the effeminate. All right? This is not David saying he doesn't go to church. This is not David saying that he keeps his children out of youth group. Ah. Okay. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. If a child says they won't go to youth group because youth group has cliques or youth group has hypocrites and this, that, and the other thing, in this church, I will tell you, your child is a pretender. Your child is copying a posture as being more righteous than the people in the youth group. But if you look in your child's heart, it's filled with every kind of evil. 
It's resentful, it's bitter, it's jealous, right? That's what causes a child to refuse to be common with sinners who are in the body of Christ, okay? Does this make sense? Now, what is a pretender? A pretender is somebody that lives on pretense, right? Pretense, pretender. Now, what is pretense? Pretense is Facebook. Okay? That's all it is. Nah, I'm exaggerating. But pretense is the engine that drives, I want to say, anybody under 30 today. I mean, everybody is a poser. Everybody is a poser. We pose with the vocabulary we use. We pose with our aesthetic judgments. We pose with our beards, with our hair. We pose with our clothes. We pose with our homes. We're posers. We are pretenders. We try to mislead people by the style that we claim. Okay? And there are people who try to mislead people by the style they never claim. In other words, there are people who humble brag by not having any posing. We never stop being something we aren't. Okay? Now, let me talk about one thing where you see this, and that's in men's hairstyle. I'm not going to talk about women's hairstyle, cause, so just forget women's hair. Don't worry. The Bible has nothing to say about your hair. <laughs> you know, I just love women. So now, you men that are women, okay, stop posing with your hair. Now, I'm looking down. Have you seen these men that wear peacocks on their head? It's disgusting. You don't fool anybody. All you're doing is trying to say, I really feel vacuous inside me, so I put a peacock on my head to take away the fact that there ain't nothing in me, and I have no firmness. And so here's my hair! You guys, it's disgusting. Don't do it. Don't put a parrot on your head. Okay? Don't do it. Because everybody knows that you're just vacuous. Nobody of substance ever puts a parrot on their head. You're pretender. What you want is to be so serious in your presentation, in your character, in your family, in your relationships, in your friendships, that nobody ever thinks about your hair. That's manliness. A man who is precious about his hair is a man who has no manhood. He's a pretender. He's a bounder. He's a poser. He's fake. 
Now, I'm also going to say the same thing about bodybuilding. Why would a man go through life trying to make a big deal out of how he looks to other people unless there's nothing in there? It's disgusting. Christians don't do that. Okay, I'm not saying you shouldn't lift weights. I am saying you should not be vain. A man should have strength that doesn't come from worshiping strength and trying to get it. Does this all make sense to you? It's pretending. Men should never pretend. We leave that to women. Well, I don't know. I I haven't thought about that, so I better back out of it. (laughs) You think I better back out of that one? Okay, I'll back out of that one. All right, I'll back out of that one. All right. Nor will I go with pretenders. We don't even hang with them. We do not make statements by our clothes, by our aesthetics, by our movies, by our music, by our style, by our hair, and by our skin. We don't do it. Because what is it? It's to focus on the outside of the cup. Now, I'm not saying that it, you shouldn't think about your clothing or you shouldn't think about your hair. But hey, listen, if you have to spend, you're a man, you have to spend 20 minutes describing to your hair stylist and he's gay how to do your hair. Dude, something's wrong. Okay, all right, okay. All right. We need to be integrated. We need to be, have integrity. We need to be strong in our commitments. Men are firm. Men give their word and they keep their word. Men say no to their lusts. Men don't play video games because it's posing. Men don't need a video game to kill somebody. They can just do it naturally. Well, only if you're in the military or if you're in the police force, right? Men are firm. And men don't need to talk to show their firmness. All right, you with me? David says that he doesn't hang with people who are opposers. Then he says, I hate the assembly. Now, it's one thing for us to refuse to hang with people who are opposers, pretenders, but it's another thing entirely for us to hate the wicked. And so you don't begin to be righteous until your affections go in the direction that God has for you, okay? And all of us are quite fine with us talking about how we love God. I just love God. I love his word. I love his church. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And we never, ever say what we hate. Never. You have not begun to have a heart after God's own heart until you hate what he hates. Remember, David was a man after God's own heart. And so David hated what God hated. And so David proves the sincerity and integrity of his heart by saying, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. 
He will not hang out with the groups of sinners, and he won't sit with the wicked. Okay? Why? Because he hates them. Do you know what I hate in the conservative Reformed church today? What I hate? I hate esthetes. I hate them. I hate them. Now, what is an esthete? A-E-S-T-H-E-T-E. Look it up. I hate people who cultivate an ability of making distinctions between what is beautiful and what is ugly and develop a vocabulary that's suitable for the beauty that they claim they recognize. I hate it. Why do I hate it? Well, because you can't reduce God's creation you can't reduce paintings. What kind of people hang out at the Chicago Art Museum? The last time I was there, I went in the men's washroom and I got propositioned. Does that surprise anybody? Well, yeah, this was years ago, okay. <laughs> okay. But does that surprise anybody? Who lives at the intersection of aesthetics? Come on, see what you see. You know, it's often true that, that, that you expect pastors to lie to you and only comedians tell you the truth, <laughs> okay? How about this? How about if I say that when I see a man who uh, has, is, has, 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 okay, okay, he's got like a cape over his shoulder, okay, and he has on the pattern that Burberry's, you know, their, their, their plaid pattern, right? Okay, and he's got this, this parrot on his head, and he talks like this. Am I supposed to not see what I see? Everything with that man is about aesthetics. And he wants everybody to know that he is the perfect arbiter of style. Can we agree if you're a man wearing a cape Sunday morning and you, it's the Burberry pattern that you are claiming to be the arbiter of good taste? Can we all agree on this? Why else would you do it? He's not just choosing a style haphazardly. He's making a statement. And so if you go up to him and you say to him, you know, I, I just... I just really like the way you look. You're just beautiful. And you say to your children, look at that weird-looking man with the parrot on his head wearing Burberry plaid. Okay? Guess what will happen? Everybody will get mad at you. Why? Well, the reason is that you're supposed to act as if you don't see it. You're supposed to live as if those who signal their pride in their presentation are not signaling their pride in their presentation. Do you understand this? And so growing up with my kids when I'd walk around with them, and if I saw a man who, who had a cape and had a parrot and was da, 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 I would say, look at the man with the cape and the parrot and the da, 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 da. And my children would just die, <laughs> you know? Tell them, it's true, yeah, yeah. 
But why does a man wear that? It's because he wants you to pay attention to his cape and his parrot and his da-da-da-da-da-da-da. People, Christians, should see what we see. And we should point out to our children what people are saying. It's not rude. That's why they dress that way. They want you to say publicly in front of them, children, look at the parrot on his head. That's why they're wearing a parrot on his head. It's so weird for a guy to wear a parrot on his head and for you to act as if there's no parrot on his head. Do you see how dishonest we all are? About half of you think I'm right and half of you hate me right now. Listen. If you want people to pay attention to you by putting a parrot on your head, then don't get angry if they pay attention to you because you have a parrot on your head. And you make sure you inoculate your children against people with parrots on their head and do it in their presence. Oh, that's rude? No, what's rude is for people to wear a parrot on their head and take everybody captive demanding that they act as if there isn't a parrot on their head. Do you realize that's what's going on with transsexuality today? Everybody's taking the whole public square hostage, okay? And then demanding that the whole public square act as if they're not aware that they're taking them hostage. David says, I won't have anything to do with it. His eyes on the loving kindness of God. He lives in conformity with God's law. He won't sit with them. He won't hang with them. And then we're all okay with that because it's a private moral choice. And then he says, I hate them. I abominate it. I abominate esthetes. I can't stand them. Okay? Why? Because it's evil. Somebody who's beautiful doesn't paint their face. This is something every man wants to tell every woman. And then, you know, you say this to women, and they say, oh, well, you don't realize that I'm wearing makeup. I've had that said to me, and I go, well, yeah, you're right. I didn't realize you were wearing makeup. So I guess that blows the point. But look, all the things that we do to try to mislead people in terms of who we are and what we are are not of God. So does that mean a woman shouldn't wear makeup? Well... Can, can you understand that I'm making a distinction between makeup that deceives and makeup that covers? Okay? And I believe there's, there is actually in that a truth, all right? In other words, it doesn't mean you should dress ugly. It doesn't mean your house should be ugly. It doesn't mean that your clothing should be ugly. But it does mean that you should not be an esthete. And as a man, it means you should not have a parrot on your head. David says, I shall wash my hands in innocence. And then he says, verse, I will go about your altar, O Lord. So this context is worship. So if you were to go to Old Testament worship to the altar, that's where worship happened, you would wash your hands. Why? Well, the same reason we have a prayer of confession. When you come into the presence of God, you're to be clean. Now, would there be people in the Old Testament who would wash their hands with a filthy heart? Yeah. And so there are people today who pray the prayer of confession with the leader without in any way confessing sin. We can't come into the presence of God without washing. We can't do it. And so David says, 
I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord. And why? So that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. So he comes, he washes, he, he confesses his sin, and he does it so that he may join with the people of God in whispering thanksgiving and muttering wonders. But that's not what it says. It says proclaim and declare. So how come many of you whisper and mutter? Do you have no joy in God? None? Do you think it's holy for you to whisper and mutter? Do you? Why do you whisper and mutter? It's not what David does. David doesn't whisper and mutter. He proclaims and declares. You say, well, I'm quiet in my singing because I'm a monotone. Or you say, I'm quiet in my singing because my voice goes wacko when I reach the high notes. I don't know how to hit the high notes right, which is Mary Lee's mother. And you sit next to her as she sings in worship, and it's delightful because she just sings out. And she knows that her voice goes all, like, weird when she tries to hit a note, you know, when it do 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 and she'll go do 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 you know, she never hits the note. So, so is it less beautiful when God's people are quiet because they don't know how to sing? You know the thing I love about our band and the musicians of this church? It's unaffected. Unaffected. See, this is my timing. David told me to be done a long time ago, but I don't, David and I are going to have to get together. All right, I'm supposed to be done now. Um, do you realize that, that our musicians are not trying to be something they're not, and they're not trying to hit some to aspire after and hit some cultural ideal of what the voice should be. Do you realize that in Calvin's Geneva, if you had listened to the singing at that time, it would have been a cacophony. It would have been horrible. And therefore, it would be beautiful. Okay? I may proclaim with a voice, would you please get over yourself Just forget yourself and proclaim and declare. Don't think about what your wife or your husband or your children think of you. Lose yourself in worship. Be loud. That is always the standard of excellence in the people of God and their worship. Do you realize that? It's loudness. All right. Oh, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. How does God's glory dwell in this house? It dwells in the praises of his people. Why does it dwell here more than the woods? All of you have had the same thing I've had, which you've had lots of people say to you that they don't go to church because they worship God in the woods. Right? We've all had, I've had many people tell me that. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it is that the glory of God 
is always at its apex when those parts of his creation who bear his image and likeness, which is man, are praising him. Yeah, it's wonderful when the birds praise him. It's wonderful when the sea praises him. It's wonderful when the mountains praise him. But when God's people who are made in his image and likeness, when they praise God, that's the apex of creation. And everything about global warming is a denial of that. The whole green movement, the whole environmental movement, is an attempt to say that the, that the nadir, the lowest point of God's creation, is wicked, sinful, corrupt, disgusting man. And if we could just get rid of man from God's creation, then imagine, you know, we all lived in harmony. You hoo hoo. You could say I'm a dreamer. And what the whole environmental movement is, is a, a bunch of dreamers who think if they remove man from the face of the earth, it will be perfection. Do you understand that? That's the subtext of every single headline that you read on your news page that has to do with global warming, the environment, all of this. But God made the apex of his creation man because only man bears the image of God. And so it's precisely the opposite of the wicked who think if they remove man, then nature will be perfect. And the reason they want to move man, remove man is that man bears the image of God. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's, it's just precious. It's, it's, it's priceless. It's, it's, like, it's like they're prophetic by what they hate. Isn't that something? Now, does that mean that I think the Cuyahoga River should be covered with oil so you can set it on fire? <laughs> no. Does that mean that I don't care about carbon? Does that mean that we don't use solar collectors? No. What it does mean is that we remember that people of God love the church of Jesus Christ. They don't go out to the woods. They don't go fishing. Because there's nothing that could keep them from church where the people of God praise God. Because that's the high point of the week. Come on. You know that's true. Church is always the high point of the week. Why? It's not because of me. It's because here we are unified in praising God. And so the Lord dwells in our midst. And we're all sinners. We're all sinners. All of us. Okay? Oh, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. What are bribes? We all think bribes are something missionaries to the Mideast and Africa have to deal with. But that's not what bribes are. Bribes are likes on Facebook. Bribes, for us, are rarely financial. They're flattery. They're lies that are told us to get us to support something that we shouldn't. They twist justice. They twist truth. And so we don't have anything to do with bribes. We are not seduced by the flatterer. We're impervious to the flatterer. They can't influence us. We don't have anything to do with bribes. 
But as for me, says David, I shall walk in my integrity. It's quite a, quite a manly statement. I shall walk in my integrity. Right? I mean, it does sound man- manly, right? I shall walk in my integrity. Sounds manly, doesn't it? So look what he says next. Redeem me. That doesn't sound manly. The dude just said he's going to walk in his integrity. Why would he say redeem me? Then he says, and be gracious to me. That doesn't sound manly. All of a sudden to go from the statement, I shall walk in my integrity, to being a supplicant, to pleading with God to give him the very integrity he just said he'd walk in. That's what he's doing. Now I want to end by saying this to you. This whole psalm is sort of like a sachet, a dance. It's back and forth, back and forth. David's whole life is a dance. David had Bathsheba and the murder, okay? And David says he's going to walk in his integrity, and then he says to God, redeem me and be gracious to me. Now, how is it that David, the man of Bathsheba and the murder, is able to talk so much in this psalm and all through the psalms about his integrity. How does that work? Well, let me ask you this. How is it that you are able to state your integrity? And what you're going to tell me is, I don't. All right? You with me? You won't lie. You will not claim your integrity, will you? And somehow you've gotten to the point where you think that's righteous. And you say, well, yeah, you told me not to lie. So here's the question. Is David a liar? Is David a liar? No, he's not. But David is seriously, seriously wicked, isn't he? Oh, yeah, he is. So how come David can talk about his integrity, but all you do is walk around all the time going, woe is me, don't look at me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Why do you do that? Shame is not for the Christian. It is not godly to live in shame. Do you hear me? Shame is given us by God to cause us to flee from sin. But no Christian lives in shame. Why not? Because it denies the work of God. That's why. You are not that child who had that done to you. You are not that child. You are a woman of God. And you walk in integrity. You may not live in shame because it's a denial of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Do you understand me? You may not live in your adultery the rest of your life. You may not live in the murder of your unborn child. You may not live in the wickedness of your father and your mother because it's a denial of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. You must pray with David that you walk in the integrity of your heart. Okay? Okay?
You live by faith. Okay? I have to. Listen. The new book's going to be called The Grace of Shame. And I write from firsthand experience. (laughs) I can remember sins where, when it was over, I screamed to God from shame. I pleaded with him, pleaded with him to watch me. The shame was the greatest gift that God gave me. But you don't live in it. Because the blood of Jesus Christ washes you from your sin. And if you don't believe that and you live in shame, there's no hope for you. The Christian does not walk around cringing. The Christian lives boldly and comes boldly to the throne of grace. So right after David gets done talking about his integrity, he asks God to be gracious to him. Okay, are we all on the same page? Are we all there? Huh? Huh? I'll be waiting. Huh? Are you there? Come on. Anybody else? Is there anybody here who doesn't need God to be gracious to them? Speak up. But that's so pathetic that I have to have silence be the testimony. Why don't you just say amen? Are you too white to do it? Come on. Do you live in God's grace or don't you? Are you, are you muttering? Come on. Amen. Amen. At the end of worship today, the band's going to, our musicians are going to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. It's loud. Sing, okay? And when you come forward to this table this morning, come by faith. Don't come in shame, because it denies the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? Eh? Okay. All right. Okay. Let's, Let's have the Lord's Supper.